You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome to this week's episode of Best Camp of My Life, a podcast about MMA. Kind of, but not really, but kind of. I'm your host, Fernanda Prates, unless I'm actually a roll of masking tape. In which case, I'm still your host, Fernanda Prates, in the sense that these are my official name and official job, but I'm also not your host, Fernanda Prates, in the sense that I'm not a person. I'm a roll of masking tape which is convenient in the sense that not much is demanded or expected from rolls of masking tape, but also inconvenient in the sense that there isn't much that rolls of masking tape can aspire to. It's both a liberating and oppressive existence, that of us alleged masking tapes, as our limitations are also what sets us free. With a single purpose and an objective existence, stripped of any ideas or, shall I say, illusions of choice and self-governance, we can actually afford to just be. In any case, no need to dwell on any of that now. Lucky for you, my personhood, or lack thereof, is of no consequence for the next hour or so, as the discourse in this space will be shared with yet another special guest I am fairly certain really is a person, and a very smart one at that. Today, I'm joined by combat sports regulatory lawyer Eric McGracken. Eric, who's also a licensed MMA and kickboxing judge, is the brains behind CombatSportsLaw.com, which which is, in my humble opinion, one of the very best resources to read about regulatory and other relevant developments in the world of combat sports. Eric's Twitter presence is also a resource I would recommend for all MMA fans, as he's constantly helping us wade in real time through whatever bullshit nonsense we're having to deal with as MMA fans that week, or day, or hour. In any case, here's our chat. Enjoy it or don't, just keep in mind that Eric is a lawyer and can totally sue you if you're mean to me. At least I'm pretty sure that's how that works. Well, my dear listeners, I'll just start off by saying that today may very well be the day when I out myself to the world as a dumb person. That is the risk you'll run while in the presence of very smart people. And that is a risk I was willing to take so I could gift you with our guest's presence today. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Fernanda, thank you for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. It's been, uh, I, Eric was subjected to a podcast first, listeners. I got the time of our recording wrong and he still stuck with me. So I truly appreciate it. I think it's because you're Canadian and you're nice. Or I'm just not busy in my law practice today, but, but either way, I'm here and I'm happy to be here. <laughs> uh, so I looked out too. That's awesome. Uh, Eric, I, I mentioned in the, the intro that you're a lawyer as in a person who has a real-life occupation with direct implications in the world. Unlike so many of us uh, MMA perverts, I so I wanted to ask you something that I like to ask of all my guests. Because to me, it truly is fascinating that anybody would be interested in MMA, let alone you know, actual intelligent people. Um, so I guess let's start with the beginning. How did you... How did like combat sports come to be in your life? Well, with with MMA, I'm just old. It, it just comes down <laughs> to that. And so I remember a time before MMA existed, before the UFC existed. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like I was a kid, little kid growing up in the 70s and 80s. I liked professional wrestling until I learned it was staged and scripted. And then I fell out of love with it. I loved, uh, you know, the martial arts movies of the days, Chuck Norris mm-hmm. stuff and Jean-Claude Van Damme and everything that made 
martial arts seems so spectacular. Mm-hmm. And and then out came that crazy first UFC where mm-hmm. it was just a gong show. And, you know, in hindsight, when I watch it now, it was just there to sell Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But, mm-hmm. but at the time, it was sold as the science experiment of what works and what doesn't and what's real and what's fake. And mm-hmm. I loved it. Like, like that storyline just hooked me. And so from the get-go, I just found it very intriguing to sort of scientifically find out what works and what doesn't. And here I am, 30 years later, still a grown-up kid enjoying, <laughs> you know, enjoying what Art Davey put together so many years ago. So that's that's my story. It's not exciting, but that's that's how I came to enjoy the sport. And you have, uh, when did the combatsportslaw.com, when did you start that? Th- yeah, that's coming on almost 10 years now. So, geez. Wow. I, you know, I don't even know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring up the website and look. So I wrote my first article there, yeah, 2012. So over nine years ago, and I started, I started that. I, when I lived in New Mexico, there was a pretty good kickboxing scene there. So I always enjoyed going to the live fights, and then law school and becoming a lawyer and family and all sorts of things. Um, you know, ate up all my spare time. And after a lot of years of not following combat sports, I went to a local fight show for the first time in probably a decade. And being a dorky lawyer, um, I couldn't help but ask myself, how is this stuff legal? I was just intrigued. I wasn't thinking it should be illegal. I was just thinking, how is it legal? And I wanted yeah. to sort of get into the nuances of it. And mm-hmm. th- the answer was, it wasn't legal. It was outright illegal back then in Canada. You couldn't host a legal kickboxing, MMA, or other kind of a card outside of traditional boxing, but nobody cared. And I found that completely fascinating that you have illegal events taking place in plain sight. You have cops attending, you have advertisements, you have, you know, billboards up promoting the events. So, so it wasn't, these weren't smokers that people were trying to hold underground. They were completely mm-hmm. above board events where everybody involved even probably thought they were doing things legally because they were getting city permits and all those kinds of things. But it turns out you couldn't host it legally. And that completely fascinated me how how you could have all sorts of events skirting the law with nobody caring. I found it intriguing. So from there, I just started documenting um you know, I guess what I'll call dysfunctional stories in the sport mm-hmm. and and things that I personally found interesting. And from there, it just never ended. I thought I, thought I was going to follow the path of legalization of MMA in Canada mm-hmm. because the government was being lobbied. And so I followed all of that. And I thought that'd be the end of it. But then, you know, sort of item after item after item mm-hmm. got on my radar across North America. So, I, you know, I've just stuck with it. And here I am 10 years later writing these stories for... You know, it's a pretty limited audience of who enjoys what I write, but I still enjoy writing it. So, so as long as I do, I think I'm going to keep at it. I think we, because you mentioned like sort of the dysfunction. Yeah, we never ran out of dysfunction in combat sports for you to, yeah, to be no, involved in. It, it, it always keeps feeding stories. So I do love it. There's always something weird happening somewhere. And you're also a licensed judge, no? I am. Yeah. So probably. Geez, seven, eight years ago, like at the time when MMA became legalized in Canada and then the provinces started to form commissions, just like in the States, you have state commissions. Here we have provincial commissions. So when BC formed their first legal commission, I got my foot in the door and went through John Mm -hmm. McCarthy's courses and then became a licensed judge. So yeah, probably seven or eight years I've been judging MMA bouts, kickboxing bouts, and I do a bit of amateur uh, boxing judging as well when when they need some judges to step up to the events. So like, so the way I I see you like is kind of as a student of the sport in a way that I don't think a lot of us like I use your website as a resource a lot because like you sort of translate things that <laughs> if I probably got one of those, like one of the, the raw documents or just the raw information, like it probably wouldn't make as much sense as when it does when you sort of like put it in uh, in, in ways that uh, the rest of us can understand on the website. But so, you know, I think this is something I talk about on this podcast a lot and I wanted to hear a little bit from you. Like, I think a lot of us go through sort of a journey in MMA, like 
we are you know fans a lot of us start off as just simply fans and then the more you start digging into the intricacies and kind of seeing how the systems work and just kind of like how the sausage is made quote unquote uh the relationship ends up changing a little bit and i know we'll talk uh, more about this today but sort of you know there are many things from you know how toxic the fan base can be to how sort of exploitative the system can be and a lot of us go through that journey and i wanted to ask from you as somebody who has been you know talking you know studying the sport and talking maybe uh in depth about the less savory aspects of it and who's also a fan is it hard for you to sort of balance those two sides of it like is it hard for you to follow the sport as a fan knowing how much goes into it uh sort of behind the scenes well i think i think you hit the nail on the head fernanda and let me let me ask you this like i'm happy to you know, to give you my views, but wouldn't it be so much easier if we just stayed simple fans and enjoyed the sport instead of getting into all this shit? Mm-hmm. Something about blue pill and red pill. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to talk about red pills anymore because, like, the analogy is tainted at this point. But like, it is kind of like once you see certain things, you can't unsee them, even though you kind of wish you would. Yeah, and I think you're right. That's sort of the natural journey of, oh, this is an interesting sport. I enjoy it. I'm going to watch it. Hey, I'm going to learn a little bit more. Oh, God, I don't like what I've learned. <laughs> but but I still sort of enjoy the sport. And if I had to put it in a soundbite, I, I think I'd say I enjoy everything about combat sports except for brain trauma, which is okay. a really ugly reality of it and it's hard Mm -hmm. for me to get away from that and then the business exploitative aspect of the sport that doesn't have to be the way it is i think i think that one there is a fixable problem although it's a real uphill battle because there's a lot of you know very smart people trying hard to fix things and and obviously Mm -hmm. Their, their path to success is filled with, you know, all sorts of obstacles. But other than those two things, like that's the two things I've learned that I can't sort of uh, disassociate myself. I'll, I'll, I'll always mm-hmm. be vocal about those issues. Um, but other than that, I, you know, I think they're, they're a wonderful sport. But, but uh, yeah, I, I'm like a moth to the flame when it comes to talking <laughs> about getting fighters a better slice of the pie. And when it comes to yeah. less exploitative contracts and when it comes to recognizing the real you know, harm and damage that men and women expose themselves to doing this. I, I, you know, as a, as an injury lawyer, I've just read, I couldn't even count it, but probably thousands of medical reports dealing with people's traumatic brain injuries, mm-hmm. uh, thousands of cases where you see the long-term follow-up of how people are harmed from mm-hmm. brain injury. And I can't put the blinders on then and watch fights and pretend that stuff isn't happening. It is happening. Mm-hmm. And and I always like to at least have honest conversations about it. And some people yeah. don't like those conversations. They, they they push back, right? They feel like you're attacking the sport they enjoy by mm-hmm. by having critical comments. Mm-hmm. And and I try not to do that. Like I try not to sort of dump on the sport without being constructive about it. But but anyways, yeah, there's there's my sort of you know, you follow me on Twitter, you see me ranting yeah. about this stuff all the time. No, those are, it's, I mean, I kind of, uh, yeah, I can absolutely understand what you mean when you say that people don't necessarily appreciate uh, when you point out, <laughs> oh, maybe there are negative aspects uh, to this thing. And I think it's a human thing and we see it a lot with the MMA fan base. Um, one thing I wanted to, there's a lot to unpack there and hopefully we'll get to to touch on a lot of those aspects that you mentioned. But one thing that I kind of wanted to uh, start with today, since we are in the middle of the Olympic Games, I am unfortunately not following it all that well because things are happening sort of like in the middle of the night and I'm an old lady, I go to bed early. Uh, but you, something you touched on recently that I thought was very interesting, you talked about Olympic boxing and how, you know, for men, the rules were changed so that men don't really need to wear the headgear anymore because it's been, um, I, don't, I don't know if the research is necessarily 100% conclusive, 
but and you'll be able to to say that better than I can. But like that, you know, it indi- there's indications that the headgear doesn't really necessarily help uh, prevent brain injuries, and in some ways it can make it worse. And that they did away with the headgear for the male competitors, uh, but they did not do that for the female competitors. And oftentimes when we see things like this, especially people like me who are, you know, not not very well-versed in the intricacies of the decision-making processes. We just kind of think, oh, you know what they're doing. And then you read up and it's like, oh no, they just, you know, didn't do the research on women. And so women keep wearing the thing that might be giving them more head trauma. Like, why not? Uh, And I kind of wanted to talk to you about that a little bit. I guess, are there... Do you think that there are like essentially sort of sexist implications on this kind of on this kind of rule? Yeah, so I'd love the answer to be something other than sexism. And mm-hmm. and I ask that question honestly. I say, is there something other than sexism at play here? But I don't see it that way. So so you're right. I was watching, I'm sitting here watching Olympic boxing in the middle of mm-hmm. the night, and there's some men's bouts going on and you know, some some decent action. And then some women's bouts go on and it jumps out. You can't miss it. The women are wearing headgear, the men aren't. And so without mm-hmm. understanding anything about headgear, the very first question is, okay, what does headgear achieve? And why are you only achieving that for one of the two genders? So so headgear either helps and you're giving women the safety benefit. Why are the men shortchanged? Or headgear hurts and why are you shortchanging the woman by making them wear it? And so, so of course, I'm inquisitive. Now, now I've read for, for probably a decade the studies on headgear, and the results is, is I don't want to say it's 100%, it's not, but the, the vast majority speak to the fact that headgear does absolutely nothing to prevent mm-hmm. brain injuries. If anything, headgear exacerbates brain injuries, makes it easier for fighters to be concussed. And I could mm-hmm. I could sort of speak as to why that might be because that mm-hmm. it's counterintuitive. People people sort of it's, don't believe that. I was gonna that. say it's completely counterintuitive. Like if you know you don't hear about the 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 science and the research behind it, it just it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so 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 I'll get into that, um, mm-hmm. e- even though it's sort of a separate rabbit hole. But but basically, if you understand how a brain injury occurs, it comes from rapid acceleration of the brain. So so mm-hmm. somebody's brain gets whipped around, or or rapid deceleration. So you fall down, and the head hits the canvas, and it goes from moving to not moving flat. You could have a brain injury, or it goes from. Uh, not moving to moving, so you eat a punch, and the head gets whipped back, and the brain rattles around. And you see it the most from hook punches, rotational punches, where the head whips around sideways. Uh, and, and so just appreciating that very basic thing, when the head gets moved very rapidly, it rattles the brain around, and you have a brain injury. Putting on headgear doesn't do anything to stop those kinds of forces that are at play. The, the very modest amount of padding that they add really mm-hmm. do nothing practical. And I've talked to physicists about this. There's a great physicist named Jason Falcon, and he and he wrote a book called Fight Like a Physicist. If you really want to dork out on the science of fighting, it's it's a good read. That's amazing. I never heard of him. I'll actually yeah, yeah, he's on Twitter. He's a good good follow. Falcon, yeah. T-H-A-L-K-E-N. But but so so he studied the physics of martial arts and, and so he's got a good book on it. But you could talk to doctors that mm-hmm. understand this stuff as well in terms of the mechanism of brain injury. So headgear doesn't do anything to stop that mechanism of brain injury. Why does it make it worse? There's there's a few hypotheses, and a lot of them are good. One is headgear makes your head a bigger target. So it's easier okay. to hit your opponent. That's number mm-hmm. one. Number okay. two, the the more something protrudes from the head, if you hit it with a with like a grazing hook type of a punch, the more force is being applied in terms of whipping it around. Like like if you just think of extending something out from your head and you hit the very end of it, that's going to apply a lot more force uh, to to the center of gravity. Um, and, and so headgear protrudes out, even if it's not a lot, you know, a few centimeters or an inch or so, but that could have more force applied from these uh, rotational strikes that are landed. For me, when I spar, I sweat like a pig. And 
after the first round, if you're hitting me without headgear, I've got some natural lubricant there that makes the glove slide off the head unless it's a very clean shot. The headgear mm-hmm. takes that away as well. So you, mm-hmm. you now have more, you have more friction. You have leather on leather, which makes a glancing blow apply more force. And the last one, and this one's probably important in terms of long-term career, People hit you harder when you're sparring with headgear on. They just naturally think there's some safety involved here and I could hit my opponent harder without even trying to be a jerk. Things just escalate faster. And you probably get a little, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you probably get a little more courageous too in terms of getting hit. Yep. Yep. I can speak for myself because I didn't wait for many years. I didn't spar a lot. Uh, But when I wore headgear, I got a a lot braver. Yeah. A lot less... (laughs) Yeah, conservative. No, that's right. And and your opponents do as well. And that's just Mm -hmm. human nature. People start smacking each other in the head harder, thinking there's a level of protection which isn't there. Mm -hmm. And and when you appreciate, you know, like I'm really sort of avoiding your initial question right now, but but when you appreciate that (laughs) this is appreciated. Yeah, the vast majority of brain damage fighters take is in training. If if you do the Mm -hmm. math, it's probably 80-90% of their brain damage is in training. And so if you reduce that, that goes a long way to, you know, helping uh, fighters minimize career damage. So, so headgear is a problem for a lot of reasons. It has value. It, it prevents cuts. If, if you have accidental yeah. clash of heads, you're not going to get people, uh, you, know, you know, having their heads busted wide open, which could be a problem. But from a brain health perspective, the science is pretty clear that headgear doesn't help. And, and so coming back to what the Olympic boxing world is doing, you look at it and you say, okay... Why did you guys take away headgear for men? It's because the AIBA, the Amateur uh, International Boxing Association, they accepted that science. They said, yep, this stuff is bad. It's not helping brain injuries. It's making brain injuries worse. Let's take it away for men. <laughs> and, and well, why not for women? If, if the headgear for all those reasons is causing more brain injuries, the gender of the fighter is going to have nothing to do with why the same science or logic shouldn't apply to women. But, but they basically said, well, the data deals with a lot of men's bouts, not really so many women's bouts, so we'll just stick with the defaults. So to me, that makes no sense. It just seems like the wrong default to stick to. But if you give them the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, they're doing it because the data isn't there. Way back in the last Olympics, which is, you know, we're talking five years now when they were in Rio, they said they're going to get the data for women. The science isn't there, but we're going to get it. Well, five years have passed. They haven't Mm -hmm. bothered getting the data. If I'm the sport regulator and, and a key piece of safety equipment that addresses the most dangerous part of the sport, which is brain trauma, if you're saying we need data on this, every last dollar you have to invest in the well-being of the sport should be going into that. And they didn't bother doing that. So at best, I'm, I'm just trying mm-hmm. to be generous here. At best, they made a default decision that made no sense. And they yeah. didn't prioritize what they should have prioritized, which is the brain health of you know half the competitors that are stepping up to participate in this sport. So, so I think women are being shortchanged here. And I can't think that it's anything other than complete uh, negligence or sexism at play. Like they either don't care or they're intentionally making bad decisions. I, and, and again, I'd, li- I'd like a better explanation. I, I tweeted yeah. out to the AIBA. I tweeted out to mm-hmm. the IOC. I'm not expecting an answer. Yeah. I tweeted out to Boxing Canada. I said, hey, uh, where's the science? Nobody's like, giving me an answer. So, yeah. so I, like maybe I, the explanation exists, but you haven't seen yeah. it yet. Yeah, and and again, I'm open minded. Like like like, share it with me. Maybe it's you know, like mm-hmm. I don't want to be there saying you guys are all being sexist. But please give me an explanation other than that, because yeah. I I think if you're a woman boxer and you trust the science and you say I don't want to wear headgear in competition because it is more dangerous from from a brain health perspective. I think in Canada they have a human rights argument. They could argue that it is a sexist rule and they should be given the choice to have headgear or no headgear since the regulators seem asleep at the switch and getting together the data that's going to help them make an informed decision. What baffles me though, and I know you touched on it, but like, why aren't, why do you think we aren't talking about this more? Yeah. So I, and, and you'll see this in MMA, you'll see this in other combat sports. A lot of people just don't care 
when you talk about fighter safety, and that's because mm-hmm. it's a dangerous sport. And you get the attitude of, they know what they're doing, they know what they signed up for, you know, stop whining, stop being a sissy about it, that uh, they're okay with it. Why should you be complaining when the fighters themselves are not complaining? And, and I've got a couple things to say about that, which is safety is safety. Like at the end of the day, mm-hmm. if there's room for safety improvements, accepting it's an inherently dangerous sport, like you're not going to take away the the you know the danger of person on person combat that is the heart of the sport but when you're talking about safety equipment that's maybe doing more harm than good that's worth talking about so i don't think just because it's a gritty sport you should overlook sensible safety reform and in terms of it that you know this maybe even gets into athlete exploitation on the professional side of it but on the amateur side it's true people don't want to rock the boat you want to make the provincial team you want to make the national team you want to make it to the olympics yeah. fighters as tough as they are they often don't like speaking up and and you know rocking the boat and and going after regulators and saying things aren't fair a lot of folks go with the status quo because they don't want mm-hmm. to derail their chances to be the man or the woman in the Olympics. And so a lot of folks don't speak up. So so when I see a BS thing like this, I'm more than happy to speak up about it. But but yeah, I think I think too many folks that enjoy combative sports shrug off safety issues just because they're dangerous sports in the first place, so they don't care. And, and I was talking about that uh Norwegian bikini scandal, right? Yeah. That made that made international headlines because every mm-hmm. paper could print a photo of the Norwegian uh I think it was handball team in their bikinis. So, so you, you easily sell papers when you're talking about athletes in bikinis. Brain trauma, I guess, doesn't sell as many papers. But, but if you're talking about sexism in sport, this is a story mm-hmm. of sexism in sport leading to brain injury or potentially leading to brain injury. That's of utmost importance. If a boxing regulator, you know, claims they're taking safety seriously, they should really be. Uh, putting their full attention on this and, and getting to the bottom of it and fixing things. It's You mentioned that, and I think it can apply to so much, including MMA, the idea, like when you mentioned that they don't want to rock the boat because, and I think it really ties back to the systems in which these athletes are inserted, right? Like in this case, uh, but in MMA too, uh, I feel like a lot of the problems come from the fact that you have athletes who i think and and i've talked about this here on the show before like i feel like it's easy for us to get sort of uh disappointed when an athlete um does something like when john jones was talking about negotiations and Derek lewis just came in and said something like oh i'll i'll fight for less money and everybody's like oh no Derek looks what you're doing and but then again i often think about how you know we like to talk about individual responsibility a lot. And of course, these are adults and they have a voice and a say and 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 everything else. But at the same time, they're inserted in all these systems that very conveniently discourage them from speaking out uh, on several issues, right? And to me, that's kind of like the bottom of it, especially, and we talk about this a lot with MMA fighters, Um I think the idea that fighters are exploited um, as a class, like it's no longer a controversial thought. Like you said that 10 years ago, people would probably not, uh, you know, be as as willing to to discuss this. But I think now we can pretty much agree that, um, you know, that it is a very exploitative system that they are risking a lot for not a lot of compensation. And I think the need for fighters to get organized um, is very obvious at this point in time uh, for anybody who's really paying attention. But the problem really is how, right? Like you talk about organizing and a lot of fighters will say, yeah, I'm down with that. And then you mentioned the word union and then maybe the idea will change a little bit. Uh, So I kind of wanted to ask from you, like, I know this is an incredibly broad and difficult question, but, you know, what do you think are some of the main obstacles um, to MMA fighters being able to actually organize? And do you have any ideas of what you think would be maybe a good start to that happening? Oh, so the obstacles are very real. Otherwise, it would have happened already. And what they all are, I, I probably can't even identify all of them. But, um, you know, it's sort of what we were just talking about on amateur boxing, which is a fighter's career is very short. 
they mm-hmm. want to make it to the big show, so they don't want to yeah. be a troublemaker before making it to the big show. And then mm-hmm. when they get their shot in the big show, so here's your first UFC standard type of a contract. You're not going to be the man or woman, um, you know, rattling the union saber because guess what? You're you're uh, very expendable to the promotion. They can cut you for almost any reason and sometimes no reason whatsoever. And the UFC has built their product to make fighters replaceable cogs in the machine. They like breakout stars, but they don't depend on any breakout star. They don't need a Ronda Rousey or a Conor McGregor. They're going to make their money with whoever's on that card. They figured out how to get the TV contracts to do that. They figured out how to replace stars and to not be so dependent on the big names of the sport and just keep that money train flowing. And and so when you realize you have a short window, you want to make it to the big show, you don't want to make a bunch of noise. If you make a bunch of noise, they're going to cut you out. That That's a perfect environment for the UFC to keep the status quo in place. And that's a really hard environment for fighters. Uh, to create change. I think managers, I'm not going to blame all managers, but I think a lot Mm -hmm. of managers play a role where where the managers aren't advocating for their fighters and they don't have an adversarial relationship with the UFC. And I don't mean being at their throats. I just mean pushing the envelope, trying to get more and more and a better piece of the pie for their clients. Managers should be doing that, but some of them don't. Some of the uh, managers are happy just to be feeders for for the promotion and yes men for the promotion so i think there's uh, room for reform there i also think if there is a real union with collective bargaining you'll see what happens in other sports which is managers are going to be regulated you're going to have certified managers where Mm -hmm. they need their college education they need to pass certification there's going to be standards in place about who can and can't be a manager some of these guys are going to be out of jobs if um if if the fighters ever organize and have certification for managers and guess what if your career's on the line all of a sudden you're more interested in that than maybe helping the fighters you represent so that's part of the problem uh but but what fighters can do i'm not going to pretend i have any brighter ideas than the people that have been working hard at this for a long time the the MMAFA Rob Maisie's organization he's been you know, he's, he's been trying to form, I shouldn't even say trying, he's formed a fighters association. Um, it's not a, it's not a union with, with collective bargaining in place, but he's behind the Alley Expansion Act, trying to give MMA fighters the rights boxers have. He's the man behind the class action lawsuit, which might end up costing the UFC billions of dollars for, for, you know, you know, arguably creating this illegal monopoly that they have, um, in 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 the world of MMA, and he's behind the effort to create um, you know a real for- fighters organization. So fighters need to you know it, it, it's funny because academically it's just so simple. Hey fighters, join yeah. this organization, yep. get behind it. <laughs> Guess what? If everybody's behind it, you have the power, not the UFC. Yeah. It's just so simple. But people mm-hmm. are scared. People have mm-hmm. that short window. People, and, and you see this pattern. Who speaks up that's active in the career? It's John Jones. It's Nganu. It's the champions or the near champions that realize, hey, I may be being paid three, four, five million a fight. I should be making 15 or 20 million a fight. Now I could make that life-changing money in one fight instead of three or four fights. When we're talking about the damage, brain damage, and the mileage on the career, that's a real thing. You know, as a fan, hey, I want to see that guy fight again and again and again. That's great. If you're the fighter and you're saying, I might end up drooling all over myself when, when I'm in my 60s with CTE, and I could retire early with life-changing money with half as many bouts. That's a good thing. I think you should be doing everything possible to cash out as quickly as you can. And if you want a long career because you want a long career, but not because you're financially dependent on having that many bouts, good for you. Go nuts. But if you could cash out and get a fair piece of the pie with a shorter career, make it happen. And if the fighters speak up and make it happen, they can, but... You know, I'm a broken record. A lot of people are a broken record. I, I, I'm just a cheerleader. I, I'm just here supporting the fighters, saying, "Please do this." Here's why it's a good idea. But if the collective will's not there, it's not there. And, and, and so then you maybe need some of those more aggressive reforms, like the MMAFA mm-hmm. is trying, which is let's bring in legislation, let's have 
this antitrust class action lawsuit. If 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 the critical mass of fighters won't make the change, maybe a small select number of them will make that change through congressional lobbying or through this litigation, which which, you know, the longer it goes on, the more likely it looks like it's going to succeed. So that mm-hmm. lawsuit's become uh you know, you, you know, it seemed like like a long shot to becoming the little engine that could. It looks like it just might get over that hill and and put billions of dollars back in the fighters' pockets. So it's yeah, mm-hmm. but, but that's a long conversation. Geez, that could be its yeah, own <laughs> its own its own podcast. Yeah, I've, that's I kind of have it every episode in one capacity or another because I yeah. feel like it is a very and it's kind of like you said, it is technically a simple problem to solve. Uh, then again, if it was simple, it would have been solved. So it's really not. And I personally also, like, sometimes I'm optimistic. Like, I feel like we're going sort of in a positive direction, um, especially with the fact that these are topics that are more popular now than they were five years ago. Uh, but, and then I, and then I see something and I'm like just so completely discouraged. And it's just, yeah. <laughs> I guess the inner conflict uh is very real at all times. Something yeah, and, else. Uh, no, Sorry, I, was gonna, I was just gonna say some fans as well have you know, like a real anti-union strong uh yeah. you know, your political view of it. Uh nobody's making them fight, they don't have a gun to their head. You get mm, those kinds of sound classic. bites. Yeah, and and that's always a tough conversation to have just because you're probably not going to persuade people that come into the conversation like that. I'm always open-minded to different solutions, though. Like, like if anybody mm-hmm. wants to be constructive about it, I, I actually enjoy exploring other things that can happen. Like, like the one idea I've been pushing, uh, and I don't have any delusions that it's going to go anywhere, but I thought if you can't bring in the Alley Act, if the class action lawsuit fails, and it might fail, we don't know, if the fighters don't ever form a proper union, the one reform I'd love to see are defined contract terms. If if a fighter can only be under exclusive contract with a promoter, let's say two years, let's say two and yeah. a half years, their market power goes through mm-hmm. the roof. Not everybody. Some people are always going to be cogs in the machine, but the fighters mm-hmm. that have their own drawing power, if they're true unrestricted agents after two years, whether they have the title or whether they don't, no champions clause, no exclusive negotiating, no matching mm-hmm. rights. At the end of these two years, I'm a total free agent, pay me good money, or I'm mm-hmm. free to go wherever the heck I want. These men and women would make so much more money. I've I've been actually sort of slowly beating the drum for the last year. I, I actually went so far as to write a whole bunch of federal politicians in Canada saying, hey, there's this is this is in your wheelhouse and there's a few laws you could pass either in the criminal code or in, in the Canadian Competition Act to limit these long-term exploitative contracts. So, so I think there's a lot of ways you could improve it. It's not necessarily union or no union, but if if you're dealing with somebody who just says, nobody's forcing them to fight Uh, you're not gonna have a constructive conversation there like Mm -hmm. like if you believe the promoter should pocket 80 percent, and that's a fair status quo uh chances are you know i'm not going to see eye to eye on a lot of things with you but but if you think hey these folks yes nobody's forcing them to fight but yes they're being exploited and how Mm -hmm. dangerous this career is these are the kinds of athletes that shouldn't be exploited because again if you look at how many pro boxers over the years retired with cte it's a very very ugly picture by the way i'll put in a plug for something i have nothing to do with which is a book called damage by tris dixon and i just finished it a few months ago like everybody should read this if you want to have a real look at the long-term harm that fighters have when all the glory is over read this book it it, it doesn't have an agenda it's not anti-boxing it just gives you the sober facts and you won't be able to watch combat sports with the same eyes after appreciating what's on the back end of the career of these men and women. It's a very ugly story, people who take too much damage. And if you like the sports and you want them to be improved, you're going to want the fighters to be paid well. And and just because you're a fighter doesn't mean you deserve to be paid well. People could make stupid choices. But if the choice is to make it to the pinnacle of the sport, which is the UFC, and if the pinnacle of the sport is making billions of dollars, which they are, that's where fighters 
should have a bigger slice of the pie. Now, you know, 25 years ago, if you joined the UFC and nobody's making any money and the promoter's possibly losing money, yeah, you're not going to be paid a lot because there's not a lot to be made. But it's a very big pie right now. The fighters could take a bigger slice of that pie. They deserve it because it only exists through their efforts. And they're the ones who are going to retire with real harm. So, so if you love the sport and you uh, care for the athletes, read damage and just understand the harm that these folks are going to actually experience in the long run. And from there, you might view things through a different lens. Fair to be very depressed, though. <laughs> you, might, you might not enjoy the sport anymore. You might say, hey, I don't want to watch thing, this. Right? And that's okay, too, right? There's nothing There's nothing that says people can't evolve their views on a subject. Mm -hmm. like, like, you might just say, this is so ugly. The, the end product is so ugly. I just can't support this. A lot of mm -hmm. fans go that route as well. But I'm, I'm a huge believer in informed consent. Yes. So I like to at least bluntly say, hey, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. Understand what it is. And if you still like it or support it, that's great. And if it turns you off, that's great as well. Like, I, I don't mm -hmm. have an agenda where you have to love MMA or you don't. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you like it or if you don't. If you like it, though, I don't want you believing it's the safest sport in the world. I think mm -hmm. that's a sound by Dana White has said before. I want you understanding what it is that you actually do enjoy. And from there, it might be a harder, <laughs> you know, it might be harder to continue to enjoy it. But I think there's nothing wrong with cold, hard facts. Yeah, I think there was a while when I am one of those people who really hid behind the soundbite of, oh, but like... MMA is like better for brain damage than boxing. So I'm in the clear. <laughs> like that was very much the explanation for my fandom for like 10 years. And how would I, I would yeah. defend it to other people? Well, fair enough, because you're told that, right? And you're told yeah. that by people in power and people with influence. And, and you're told that enough. People believe it. And I'm not critical of it. It's just that when you're presented with different evidence mm -hmm. and, and sound evidence, pay attention to that. Don't, don't get closed-minded to one point of view. And, and you talked about the arc of how a lot of people went from, you, you like MMA to you learn too much about it, and then you uh, end up um, you know maybe being critical of some things. The other arc I've seen... If, if you've been with a sport long enough, is there used to be this us against the world view of the fan base. So yes. MMA was Absolutely. being shut down. They were off mm -hmm. cable. They were they were they were being regulated out of existence. And a mm -hmm. lot of fans had this, hey, if if you're against the UFC, you're against this thing I enjoy. So I'm gonna advocate for it. And and a lot of fans have stuck with that mentality. It went from this fledgling business that maybe wasn't gonna survive and maybe the sport itself was gonna get uh governed out of existence to no, it survived and now it's making billions. But a lot yeah. of fans are still stuck with that old us versus you. Oh, if you don't like it or you criticize, you must be wanting to shut the sport down. And and my only point there is things have changed. It went from you know being a multi-million dollar business to being a multi billion dollar business it went from having competitors to having over 90 percent of the market and now you could view criticism through a different lens which is okay now the big guy isn't the government shutting the sport down now the big guy in the room is the promotion themselves and the fighters are the little guys that have to really you know step up and and and, and fight for a bigger piece of the pie but anyway sorry i'm a you know i'm a broken record on this but but that arc that sort of 20-year mma yeah. fan arc is an interesting one <laughs> it is absolutely and the underdog syndrome i think is very real we still have it and i see it a lot with the criticism of media even like i am am a media member who's very critical of the entity media i have always been i think all responsible media members are but like I do feel like with MMA, there's this very, there's still this very strong expectation that the media who covers the sport needs to necessarily protect it or defend it or be cheerleaders for it. Uh, and I do think it ties really, it ties back to that mentality of this is so niche and we need to protect it. Like this, and, and, and not really reconciling that moment with the fact that, like you said, things have really changed. Yeah, you're right. It's not niche. It used to be, but now it's on ESPN and now yeah. shares of the company are being sold on a $9 billion evaluation. And uh, you know, It's not football, but it's like not 
It's, yeah, it's not football, but it's it's at least a couple football franchises, right? It's at least yeah. a couple teams there. Like it's it's the real deal now. There's nothing underdog about it anymore. And and yeah, it was a entrepreneurial hard road for the owners to you know take it there. But they're there. If yeah. you come in into fresh, it's there. And so that that's sort of hey, uh, I really hope this thing makes it. Uh, those days are long gone. It's made it. And so so now you know, you. you You'll hear this sound like, oh, you know, boxing's hundreds of years old. So, of course, they have these protections. MMA doesn't. These other sports, baseball, et cetera, 100 years old. Of course, they have a union. Well, MMA is there now. And so those mm -hmm. reforms that made sense in the other sports equally make sense for MMA, for the UFC. It's just a matter of time. I just don't know how much more time and how hard mm -hmm. the road is going to be for fighters to get there. But they'll get there eventually. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, one thing I did also want to talk to you about also in sort of the fighter safety realm, because it's another discussion that I feel like we have all the time in MMA and it's a conversation about corner stoppages. Every now and then we have a fight that is a one-sided beating and nobody ends it and the ref doesn't end it and the corners don't end it. And we see like a fighter taking what we deem to be uh, an unnecessary uh, damage, which it's a weird concept, I think, that I also struggle with with MMA. Like, who are we to decide? Like, it's very hard to determine what is the unnecessary damage. But it is a cyclical, cyclical conversation that we have, and then we go back to this discussion. You know, why aren't there more corner stoppages in MMA? I wrote about it, and I talked to uh, several corner people and several fighters and you know regulators about it. And I don't think there's really an easy answer for that, but. And you, uh, I wanted to talk about that because I know you recently uh, talked about the quote unquote deregulation of seconds, which are what we refer to, uh, what are the corner people uh, in Texas. Um, and you were critical of that. And I think for the reason that I'm talking about here, which is the corners uh, have a responsibility toward their athlete. Um, and it might be problematic to, be easier uh, to to loosen up how we uh, who we allow to fulfill that role, I guess. So I wanted you to talk to me a little bit uh, a little bit more about that. Like me, first of all, how problematic it really is to to take a step back in terms of regulating what I think is a very important role in in, in fighting. Yeah. So so me and Texas are probably on the total opposite ends of this spectrum. Like Texas mm -hmm. says, let's just deregulate these guys and anybody can be a corner. Any man or woman can be a corner. They don't even need a license. Just show up and you're good to go. I'm on the opposite end, which is regulate them. And I've written this before and, and I know I get some criticism for this and some people support the idea, but why can anybody get a license in combat sports? You could be a referee, you could be a judge, you could be a second, you could be a fighter, you could be a promoter. You don't need to know one single thing about brain damage to get a license. Getting your license, there's no test you're going to write that's going to ask you what CTE is, what a concussion is, what post-concussion syndrome is, what double impact syndrome is. You don't have to know Anything, and I'm not talking neurosurgeon levels of understanding. Like, like mm. well, you, know, you, you know, you can go down a lot of rabbit holes. Brain injury is a very complex one, but you don't even need a surface level understanding of brain damage or the long term harm. So I don't like that. And if anything, I say everybody who's licensed. And again, we're not talking about a university level course, but let's kill disinformation in the sport. Okay. Let's kill ideas that are divorced from reality when it comes to brain injury. Understand what a concussion is. Understand when you're knocked out, you have a brain injury. Understand you don't need to be knocked out to have a brain injury. Mm -hmm. Understand that CTE is a lifelong progressive disease that's going to have your life end in misery. Understand that CTE comes from too many blows to the head, whether they cause concussions or not. Understand that CTE comes from uh, not just the severity of the blows and the number of the blows, but the duration of the career. So all of these things matter. Understand that most impacts to the head are going to happen in training. So train smart, smarter than people did 15 or 20 years ago. 
And if you're a licensed person, if you're the government and you're saying this is dangerous stuff, so we need to license it, let's not be cynical for a moment. Let's assume government regulates MMA not because they want to make 5% of the live gate to go into their coffers. Let's assume they regulate it for why they say, which is safety. Why aren't you making the people who are stepping in the cage or ring understand brain injury? And then when you have a conversation of, hey, I want to go out on my shield, that's exciting, the fans love it, I'm not going to be the quitter, I'm not going to give me my chance, that's fine. Now you're making an informed decision. Now you pass that basic test where you understand what you've really signed up for, not shake it off, or I got my bell rung, or um, I'll be fine, or this doesn't apply to me. Understand that, that you're exposing yourself to long-term harm, and now you're making an informed decision, I have a lot less of an issue with it. People are free to make decisions I disagree with. Who who am I to tell you how to decide to live your life? But you should have good information when you're making that decision, and I think commissions play a key role in helping fighters make that decision. And coming back to corners specifically, corners are the last line of defense. I don't know how else to frame it, right? So maybe you got a garbage referee or maybe a good referee who's doing a garbage job that fight Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, they don't see what's going on. Maybe the ringside physician isn't paying attention. Maybe they're on their phone. You've seen that happen. Maybe the ringside physician is there almost like a fan, so excited he's there, so close to the action, not thinking about their role to stop the fight. And now you got a person who's too tough for their own good, taking an ungodly beating. Their brain's just getting pounded. And the only question is, how are you going to lose? You're going to lose the fight. Are you going to get knocked unconscious? Is the referee going to wake up and stop the fight? Or are you going to go to judge's decision? But when the only question left is, how much more damage are you going to take to get that L? But you're definitely getting the L. If you're the corner person, why aren't you stopping the fight? What are you doing for your friend that's in the ring that's going to take more damage to have the same result to loss? Why aren't you thinking about throwing in the towel. And maybe you have one of these special relationships where you know they never want you to and you never yeah. will. But maybe maybe you should do the right thing anyways and stop mm. your friend from taking that damage. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Again, look, this comes down to the two of you, but let me tell you this. Do you understand damage? Do you understand mm-hmm. CTE? Do you understand brain injury? In 40 years, are you going to be there for your friend that you decide to go out on their shields and take 45 more shots to the brain when they weren't defending themselves. Do do you understand those consequences? Are you making an informed decision? And so when a regulator says, not only are we going to not require corners to understand this stuff, we're not going to even make them pay the 20 bucks and fill out some paperwork for a basic license. Anybody could show up and fill this role. I think it's a problem because you're taking away one last line of defense. And I think by doing that, some people are going to be unnecessarily harmed. So I don't get it. Again, I'm sure some people think, hey, government needs to stay out of my business and all this Mm -hmm. red tape needs to be removed and you'll have those kind of sound bites. But the reality is government's meddling in combat sports because they're dangerous. And if you view it through that lens, that decision makes no sense. Removing the need for corner seconding makes no sense. I think if anything, seconds should be held to a higher standard. It shouldn't be, hey, here's my buddy and he'll hold the bucket for me. It's, hey, here's my buddy who's going to hold the bucket for me who actually understands that basic level of brain injury knowledge so they know they actually have an important job to play. And Texas, I pointed this out, Texas requires, it's not mandatory, but Texas is one of the jurisdictions that says corners can throw in the towel. They don't use that language, but they effectively say the corner could stop the fight. Well, if you're giving them that legislative duty, these are one of the people who could stop the fight. Why wouldn't you require them to have some basic level of competence of knowing when they should stop that fight because sometimes other people are asleep at the switch and you've seen people die in the ring it's a horrible thing you've seen people develop long-term health problems from taking too much damage in the ring everybody who has the power to stop the fight should really understand when they should exercise that power so yeah anyways sorry this is like my fifth rant of this of this no i rants (laughs) are welcome in this space but but Uh, but that one makes no sense to me yeah, and it's it's interesting that you mentioned it because I uh, when I talked to some of the corners, so all of them were like theoretically okay with the idea of stopping a fight, and then at the same time I'd hear things like, uh, "I like, um, but the, this is the ref's job. 
Like they're and it is right. Like, but like you said, they're the last line of defense because the ref is prone to human error, <laughs> and that's why, like everybody else, like the doctor, like the inside doctor, and the athlete themselves. I don't even think uh, it's realistic to expect them to quit in a fight, especially when you know. First of all, we know the fan base. We know what happens when a fighter says they want to quit. We've seen it recently with uh, Max Rock. Rup- I don't know how to say his name. Um, several consonants on that name. Uh, And that was the whole thing with Robert Drysdale where he said that he didn't want to continue fighting. And the whole thing, you know, it's... it's, uh, I don't think we should ever put the fighters in the position during a fight to to say they want to quit. Um, It's very... I think it's an unrealistic expectation. Yeah, I agree. And and so so a few points there. I think you raised really good ones, Fernanda. And and one is... A lot of fighters are just too tough for their own good. You, you probably yeah. need that mentality to be willing to mm-hmm. step in there. Hey, let me get in there with a trained fighter who's going to try to knock my head off and has the skills to do it. You got to be a tough man or woman to want to do that and to mm-hmm. stick with it and to make it to a high level. Like, like if you make it to the UFC, you've had some damage in your career and you're obviously tough. Culturally, who the hell are these people criticizing fighters for quitting on the stool? Like, like the the uh, the armchair warriors, the internet tough guys. These guys aren't wimps. They're not cowards. They're not quitting. If they're if a fighter says they're done, respect that decision. If they're done, they're done, and they probably have good reasons for being done. And corners should respect that. A lot of fighters won't want to quit. Be it because yeah, they're just so absolutely. damn tough. Or be it because culturally they know the backlash is going to be so mm-hmm. brutal and they're making, we'll call it a political decision. They just don't want to have their career face that. Well, hey, be be the be the corner that takes the heat. Ah, he didn't want to quit, but I threw him the towel. Mm-hmm. Take the blood for your fighter. You want to be the tough corner? That's the tough choice to make. Do the right thing for your friends. And you take the heat. You take the heat. You be the bad guy in the media. You let them criticize you instead of your fighter. That that's a much better, you know, that's a much better solution. But yeah, I think the whole mentality of criticizing fighters for quitting on the stool or or tapping to strikes or whatever it is, get over it. Like like <laughs> these aren't wimps in the cage. These aren't cowards in the cage. These are people tougher than 99.9999% of the people criticizing them. Like, like just shut up. If you're, if you're criticizing, <laughs> Yo, I hate the whole, they're scared or they're wimps or they're this oh, or they're that. That is precious. None of you. those things. Never. Yeah. How, and we see that so often. Right. And we talked about this, like, Oh, a fighter, uh, quit, like faked an injury or whatever. And we see that so often, right? Uh, Aljamain Sterling is still taking shit for the whole thing with the Peter, Peter Young fight. And, you know, a lot of the times, and this is something that to me is the biggest, like sort of cognitive dissonance with the fan base, that it's like, we hail these people as the absolute toughest uh, in the world. Like people who do things that regular humans can't really even imagine doing. And at the same time, that they're very scared of small things or running away from opponents or faking injuries. It's like, pick one. <laughs> it is it is absolutely impossible to reconcile these two notions. The notion of that this uh, cage fighter who does this for a living and who elected this, and this is not to say that they're not scared, they don't experience fear because they absolutely do, but that they're looking for an easy way out of a situation that, is just necessarily the one of the most mentally, I'm not even saying physically, mentally challenging situations you can put yourself in. It just doesn't really make any sense in my head. Yeah, and, and, and even if they are, by the way, who cares, right? Like, oh, yeah, you had a cowardly moment, and I'm not accusing anybody of that. But even yeah, if, but even if it happened, who cares? Like, j- j- just get over it, Mr. <laughs> fan. Like, like it's just, you know, like, like, who are they to you to criticize like that? Like, they're in there doing something really tough, and if they're quitting, respect it. And even if they're quitting in circumstances where, you know, they, they regret it afterwards, so what? Just, just in the moment of it, let folks look after their own... Uh, physical yeah, right? integrity like like it's just such a weird thing to criticize i've never understood it and again the the vast majority of people that love love to dump on fighters for in cage decisions don't have a tenth of what it would take to step in that cage in the first place so you you got to be cautious and again it's not to put fighters on a pedestal say never criticize yeah, them for anything it's another thing right there's lots of lots of things you know, oh criticizable yes 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fighters shouldn't be immune from criticism from from the media or others. There's there's no pedestal at all. But when it comes to the grit and toughness of these folks doing what they do, yeah, be, think twice before you criticize there. And that's another interesting line, because like you said, it's kind of like, no, I'm okay with sexual assault, but, you know, over-exaggerating a nut shot is where I draw the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. So just, just, just where some fans come from, it's bad. But in intellectual consistency is not, not in the makeup of absolutely everybody, so you can't, yeah, you can't win all these conversations. Eric, uh, I already took up so much of your time. I want to thank you so much for being on the show today uh for all your rants they were all very appreciated i love it this is this is actually what i what i what i wanted i didn't want to put any expectations but i was like oh my god i hope eric rants <laughs> i don't get enough on twitter it's too there, there aren't enough characters yeah so kinda... that's right easier easier to rant with the microphone and, and i'm at the office so i'm still reserved i think you gotta catch me after hours and i'll i'll really look <laughs> loose but uh no fernanda thank you for having me on it's been a pleasure i i enjoy chatting with people i've gotten to know over the years on twitter so it's nice to put a voice to the name and and thank you for uh, reaching out and thanks for having me on amazing is there anything uh you want to plug uh for listeners Oh geez, not really. Um, it, it, you know, if you if you want to connect with me, Twitter's probably where I spend too much of my time. So my handles just my name, Eric McGracken, and Combat Sports Laws, where I share uh, more at depth uh, views of my rants. So so things that won't fit into a nice tweet, I'll usually put an article together on Combat Sports Law. So if you like. Uh, the legal or the regulatory side of the sport. And again, I know it's a very, very, very small niche that that caters to, but if that's something that's up your alley, feel free to check out my website. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank you all at home for listening. Thank you, Jordan, our wonderful producer. Thank you, Simone Biles. She decided to uh, not compete in the team uh, with her team for the Olympics and preserve her mental health, which is amazing. So thank you, Simone Biles, for starting that conversation. And that is it. This has been the best camp of my life. I will see you all next week. Bye.